You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome. I'm Baba Kepasade, CEO of Toronto Centre. We are delighted to be joined with 770 registrants today from 84 countries representing about 130 agencies from around the world. Our conversation about recession is taking place against the backdrop of the devastating war in Ukraine, which erupted when the world was still grappling with the economic, social and political disruptions of COVID-19. These uncertainties are not only affecting advanced countries, but also impacting vulnerable populations, including women and children in developing countries who are particularly exposed to price swings of essential commodities. Recently, I had the honor of interviewing the governor of the National Bank of Ukraine, who provided insights into the heroic resilience of the Ukrainian people and the central bank's important role in these extreme times. Please visit the National Bank of Ukraine's website to read the Governor Krylio Shevchenko's moving responses. Toronto Center also has ongoing training programs with the National Bank. According to the Financial Times, the war is a multiplier of disruption in an already disrupted world. Countries are struggling to pay for energy, food, and fertilizers, rising inflation, disruption of trade, and financial instability are all fueling a debt crisis and potential global recession. Uh, there are concerns that gains in financial stability, financial inclusion, and even climate resiliency, which are critical to ending poverty, are at risk. Since our establishment in 1998, Toronto Center has trained more than 17,000 financial supervisors from 190 jurisdictions to become change agents for building more stable and inclusive financial systems. Our mission is sponsored by Global Affairs Canada, Swedish CEDA and the IMF. And we're very grateful for the World Bank has been one of our early founders. Today, our distinguished speakers will reflect on these challenges and what can be done to mitigate the impact. They are considered superstars in our world. They are Dr. Carmen Reinhardt, Senior VP and World Bank Chief Economist. Dr. Chela Pazarspayoglu, Director, Strategy, Policy and Review Department of IMF and a former member of Toronto Center's uh, Board of Directors. Chela, we miss you. <clears throat> and Kuvin Naidu, Deputy Governor, South African Reserve Bank. And uh, as you know, uh, you've already seen their bios, but please join me in giving them a big welcome. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Please type in your questions in the Q&A section in English, French or Spanish. So let's begin. Carmen, I would like to, first of all, good to see you. And uh, I would like to pose the first question to you. We hear from commentators daily that high inflation, supply chain disruptions, the ongoing pandemic and geopolitical conflicts could trigger the next global recession. 
The U.S. Federal Reserve's jacking up of interest rates has been called the sharpest tightening since 1994. Wells Fargo puts the odds of a major recession at 50%. As a world-renowned economist, we want to hear from you firsthand. Where are you on the prospects of a recession and whether it will be a soft landing or hard landing? Also, I can't resist because of your book. Will this time be different? Thanks, Carmen. Well, I think that the, the one thing is starting backwards, uh, the thing that is the same is the view that somehow we can engineer things better. Um, you know, that, that's the common thread that, that policymakers usually convey the message that, that this time will be different because they have things under control. And, and often that turns out to be wishful thinking, which again, working backwards brings me to the other part of your question on the soft landing versus a hard landing uh, um, scenario. Um, by way of background, you mentioned in your opening remarks that this is the, the largest uh, rate hike, set of rate hikes we've seen since 94. And if you look back, you know, I've, I've worked on Fed history with, with Ken Rogoff also. And uh, uh, if you look back to 1994, 1994 was indeed a soft landing, um, but it was the only one uh, historically. And, and that's, that's an important, you know, uh, I would note that in 1994, the inflation being surmounted was in the ballpark of three percent, not eight and a half. Uh, so, so initial conditions were much more favorable to a soft landing. And I reiterate the important point that, except for that episode, Fed tightenings have had, in varying degrees, recessionary impacts on the U.S. So, am I am I in the soft camp? You know, soft landing camp. Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think that's likely. Uh, we have a lot of headwinds. Now, that's the US. How about the rest of the world? Well, one of the things that I've been remarking on uh, recurringly is the unevenness of this economic recovery from COVID in which the advanced economies as a group, uh, because of more aggressive uh, uh, and ability to deliver more, more stimulus during the, the pandemic, among other things, have done better. Uh, so for many countries, uh, many emerging and developing countries, they have not fully recovered to previous per capita, you know, per capita income, per capita GDP remains well below prior peaks. And the real risk is that they are already, many are already in stagflation mode, which is the word, and I'll end here, the word that's been revived from our old glossary. Thank you very much. And uh, Carmen, as you're speaking, I was reflecting on the fact when you said uneven um, uh, manifestations, what a shame, what a pity that all of this happening at a time when the global architecture, some would argue, is coming sort of apart. I mean, other than NATO that is really coming together, looks like all the cohesion that was built up uh, is, is at the risk of getting disrupted. Of course, that's a topic of another session, but uh, that made me think. Shayla, as I said, welcome back. So let's uh, 
look at the perspective across the street from the fund. According to the IMF's recent global assessment, financial stability risks have risen as the war tests the resilience of the financial system. So financial system, Chela, got a really bad rap in the 2008, but despite unbelievable challenges this time around since COVID, in fact, uh, it held up very well and became part of the solution. But now we might be facing a different set of challenges with persistence of inflation and the war. So let me pose that question to you. How vulnerable is the global financial system to the challenges of the recession? And is this a question that keeps you up at night? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Babak. And um, great uh, pleasure to be with you and back at the Toronto Center in this event. And great to be in the same panel as uh, Kuban and Carmen. The overall theme, the preparing for the next recession is a very important one. We should uh, certainly be ready for adverse shocks. And we need to do best we can to calibrate policies in a timely manner to actually avert a global recession. I agree with Carmen, the headwinds are very strong and um, the pandemic, the war, the looming climate crisis, all of this is coming together, if you like, almost like a perfect uh, storm. So it is clear country circumstances, of course, uh, differ. We will hear from Kuban as well, but it is clear that central banks need to tighten monetary policy and this has been happening already. This is really critical to prevent the anchoring of inflationary expectations. And I will come to the, the key point I want to make, and you asked what keeps me up at night. And this is the need for central banks to remain independent, operationally independent. This is critical for them to be able to do their job. Adequate fiscal policies, of course, needs to be in place to rein in inflation and address distributional implications from this, uh, what we see as this global um, wide uh, inflationary um, uh, development. But it is very important that the central bank independence is preserved. We spent many, many years to actually um, uh, put this in place. And I see evidence that this is actually at risk. So I am worried about it. And it's relevant regarding the question you asked. Financial system to remain resilient, central banks need to do their job, they need to stay operationally independent, and they need to take the necessary steps um, uh, in, given, given what the development. So to some extent, we do have a more resilient um, financial sector. It remained resilient during the pandemic, uh, during the recent shocks, uh, the war and its aftermath. And this, to some extent, this does reflect the regulatory reforms. And you, you know this very well. There were a lot of discussions at the time that were implemented after the global financial uh, crisis. And there were, of course, measures that were taken during the pandemic, which was instrumental in facilitating the flow of credit to the real economy. But all that means is that we are now at a difficult place because we did have um, you know, however we call it, uh, loosening of reg regulatory standards, a lot of um, non-transparent practices in terms of, you know, uh, non-performing loans, uh, asset quality, and so on and so forth. So I think these are going to be difficult issues going forward. And what needs to be done to make sure that we don't um, end up with a systemic crisis or a global systemic financial event, which we have so far been able to uh, prevent. One is, as I said, and I will repeat it, allow central banks to uh, 
do their job, that they need to uh, take the measures to make sure that the inflationary expectations are not de-anchored. Second, we need to make sure that um, we deal with pockets of vulnerabilities. The GFSR, as you mentioned, shows that the financial system in the globally systemically important banks are strong, but there is a tale of risky institutions, and that depends from country to country how fat that tail is. But I would caution that we need to be careful because there is a lack of transparency in terms of asset quality. And I will end with that. To me, a third very important action going forward, which we were late during the to take uh, this uh, during the global financial crisis, is asset quality reviews, taking early action, being prepared, stress tests, and, and the necessary measures to deal with any emerging uh, stress in the financial sector. Thank you. Thank you. And I counted, you talked about the independence of central bank, I think, three times in your comments. And that's very apropos. In fact, according to the chair of the board of directors of Toronto Centre, Governor Stefan Ingves, the governor of the Central Bank of Sweden, I mean, he has a lot of uh, you know, experiences, you know, globally. He always reminds us that countries that interfere in their central banks are the ones who end up paying severe economic consequences. And we're also seeing globally today uh, central bank independence is coming under attack through the extreme politics of, uh, you know, populist populism politics around the world. Uh, I'm not going to mention any specific countries, but that we're beginning to see some of that. Thank you, Chela. That was uh, very well put. Kuben, we wanted to have a central banker and you were our number one, number two and number three choice. So I'm glad you accepted our invitation. It's always great to have you. Um, South Africa is not just a pivotal country in Africa, it is also a major G20 nation. Yet economists are concerned about South Africa's economy because of the country's major macroeconomic problems, such as lackluster economic growth, growing inflation, and very high employment that have been exacerbated by a series of major disruptions, such as the pandemic, massive regional floods, and now food shortages due to the war in Ukraine. I guess your hands are full, Kuben. In this context, at the Reserve Bank, how do you tackle financial instability risks? Thank you. Sure. Uh, thank you, Babak. Thank you for those kind words. It's an absolute honor to be on a panel with Carmen and Chela. And uh, thank you to the Toronto Center for inviting me. Uh, we've had a long history with the Toronto Center. You've trained many of our supervisors, uh, and we've collaborated over many years. Let me start off with the policy stance we would do what we have to do. We will deploy the instruments that we would have to deploy to get on top of inflation, right? That is our primary mandate. We're not insensitive to growth. We're not insensitive to the output gap. We're not insensitive to employment. We have to take those factors into account in our thinking. But as a, an inflation targeting central bank, our primary mandate is to bring inflation back within the target range, and we will deploy the necessary measures to do that. Everything else is secondary in that respect. Right? Um, we started increasing interest rates in November last year. We increased interest rates by about 125 basis points to date, uh, and we will continue to increase interest rates. Uh, our increase in inflation has not been as sharp as the US or Europe. Uh, in fact, core inflation is still below the midpoint of our target range, but headline inflation is now above our target range. 
three quarters of our inflation is food and fuel, but we are acting to prevent second round effects. We are acting to prevent wage price spirals. We are acting to ensure that there isn't broad-based inflation, that the external shocks that we've had from food and fuel principally does not transmit into broader inflation. Um, as Carmen pointed out, uh, our recovery from the COVID pandemic has not been as robust as in, 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 in G3 countries or in advanced economies, but also we didn't deploy the same kind of fiscal uh, uh, position. So our labor market has still got a degree of slack. We're still below pre-COVID employment levels. And as I pointed out, core inflation is still below the midpoint of the target range. The other big difference is that we've got a, a trade surplus at the moment, whereas in the run-up to the financial crisis or the, the taper tantrum, we had very large current account deficits. Now, now we've got a, a current account surplus. But we're not complacent. We're taking the necessary steps on the interest rate side. But let me conclude with the fact that policymaking is about fixing your roof while the sun is still shining, right? We have got a healthy financial sector, a well-regulated financial sector with very high capital adequacy ratios, very high capital requirements. We did provide regulatory relief during COVID, but we've rolled almost all of that back. Uh, and so we're in the starting position where capital ratios, liquidity ratios are back at pre-COVID levels. In fact, bank ROEs are probably almost at pre-COVID levels. The fiscal space is not as good as it was pre-COVID. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but again, we went into this crisis with inflation under control, uh, a long, good credibility track record of anchoring inflation expectations closer to the midpoint of the target. Uh, and we are definitely not complacent. And that's why we've acted. We've acted proactively and we will continue to act in the interest of our primary mandate. Thank you very much, uh, Kuben, for that, uh, uh, for those remarks. And, uh, you know, I think it's very always important to stick to the discipline and you identify your priority right away, right off the bat. And uh, just to return your compliment in a meaningful way, we find that the South African Reserve Bank and your institutions do take capacity buildings very, uh, very seriously. And uh, we're very happy to be your, uh, honored actually to be your partner. Thank you for that. So the first round, we talked about the recession. Is it happening? Is it not happening? And all that, I think it is happening. On the second round, uh, I guess let's focus on how can the global economy recover? So Carmen, let me come back to you again. In one of your recent speeches, you highlighted that the global economy is passing through a period of exceptional uncertainty, which not only impacts developed nations, but also could have disproportionate impact on the poor and vulnerable populations in developing countries, including women. How do you see the global economy navigating this uncertainty? And how can policy makers do a better job? I don't mean they're not doing a good job, but how can they actually do better in this context? Thank you. Well, I, I, I mean, these are very difficult questions, uh, as you might imagine. Um, and, and on how policymakers can do better, let me just make sort of a very generic statement and then I'll be more, get more specific. But the generic statement is, uh, uh, you know, a lot of past policy mistakes uh, occur because bad shocks are treated as temporary and good shocks are treated as permanent. And the current situation highlights that, right? I mean, you know, we went through the discourse on uh, is inflation transitory? 
with both the Fed and the ECB being on camp temporary for an extended period of time, which was a delay in policy action. Why am I bringing this up now in this context? I think um, turning points, and this is why I was remarking on uncertainty, as you pointed out. Uh, turning points are tough. They generate a lot of uncertainty. Uh, we went from an extended period, decades, of declining inflation, declining international interest rates, um, and very, by historic standard, accommodative, um, uh, you know, uh, international financial conditions. Now, since the early 1800s, we've only had four periods of sustained negative real interest rates, multiple years in financial centers, World War I, World War II, the 1970s and now. All of those episodes were inflationary and the exit from those was tough. And, and so a big challenge that you know, you asked me about what what can be done to to overcome the damage done by COVID and and now and 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 subsequently the war. I think uh, overcoming the inflation problem is 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 really critical, and it is critical on 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 many facets. Right? I mean, there is of course you know the fact that that. Uh, um, you know, uh, COVID was already a very regressive shock across countries and within countries. We've seen this. Now we're working at the World Bank on the second poverty and shared prosperity report issued after COVID. The first one I worked with with Chela, uh, and, and before she 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 moved to the, returned to the IMF, and and you know. Um, significant increases in poverty. Uh, these are regressive shocks and inflation is a regressive tax. And, and you know, it is particularly uh, regressive in countries as income levels are lower, the share spent on food and energy and basic necessities uh, is is the sharing the, cons the consumer baskets are are larger, so they're particularly recessionary. So, overcoming the damage has to importantly, uh, you know, deal with the inflation problem, and that's much easier said than done. And you know, I can't resist just very quickly making a point on the discussion that uh, uh, both Chela and Kuban uh, spoke to on central bank independence. I think in the advanced economies, um, central bank independence is being challenged also, not necessarily de jure, uh, but de facto. You know, you have high levels, Chela spoke to this, high, th this is not just an emerging market issue. You know, we have high levels of public debt. We have high levels of private debt. Th this makes balance sheets more vulnerable to interest rate hikes. Um, we have uh, a lot of, you know, high risk debt, that corporate debt that was issued uh, during the low rate environment. Uh, we have lofty uh, price earnings ratios valuations in, 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 in equity. So, so, you know, the, we've discussed a Fed put for, forever. So these factors will constrain the Fed and will constrain banks. So I think 
number one, tackling the inflation issue. And I think that, of course, it's easier for me to sit here and say it than, than for, for, for the central banks to, to implement it. And, and you know, uh, second point, and this is super quick, fragmentation. Global, you know, we, we, we prospered during an era of globalization, you know, increased trade, increased finance. Um, we're seeing, I'm not being melodramatic, we're not seeing a huge reversal on that, but we're seeing, you know, a big stalling. Um, and the Russia-Ukraine war is frag helping fragment um, the, the global system in trade. We have not one oil price, but two oil prices in terms of, of different markets. Uh, we have, you know, uh, as, as the war also has impacted many countries through big spikes in food price inflation. And, and of course, many were already very vulnerable, high share of countries in, in debt distress or high risk of debt distress. You know, that also leads to fragmentation in the financial side because those countries will not have access an increasing share of countries will not have access to international capital markets and higher rates also are, are a constraining factor. So challenges to globalization and challenges on the inflation front, I think are the two areas I'd like to highlight for, for policymakers. Uh, and, and the second one, of course, has to be done at the international level. Well, thank you very much, Carmen. One of the many uh, reasons I enjoy speaking with you and reading your work is your impressive historical perspective. And I think you captured it extremely well. I noticed on the list of the organizations represented are, for example, the Central Bank of Brazil, a big shout out to our friends in Banco Central, but they also, you know, remember they dealt with inflation at a massive level back in the 90s, up to 5,000% or more. And they were not the only one, there were other countries. And until they were able to harness that, their economy didn't really have much of a chance of being able to get off the block. And I know the inflation numbers now are nowhere near that, but you know the cautions are very important to, to try to deal with. And I think you talked about public debt, and I'm wondering if that could be a good seg for the question I'm gonna to pose to Chela. Chela, I have a two-part question. We always have two questions. Um, with high corporate debt, as well as public debt being at historically high levels, and the sovereign credit outlook deteriorating in emerging markets, what can policymakers do about the sovereign bank crises? And what role can financial supervisory authorities play to minimize the potential risks and enhance the resilience of their financial system? I know you don't have a financial supervisory responsibility today, but if somebody looks at your DNA, it's all about supervision. So I'm wondering if you could comment on these two questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Babak. This is a very important question, and I'm sure Carmen will come in on this as well. We've been working on this uh, together for a while, and it is uh, a, share, a shared concern. Of course, with the pandemic, we had a very significant increase in both uh, public debt and private debt, as you said, because governments provided very substantial fiscal support measures as well as other measures to help. And it was needed, it was required to help businesses and households uh, cope with the crisis. And what that meant is total debt, uh, public plus uh, non-financial private debt to increase by 
28 percentage points just in 2020. And that's the highest increase uh, since World War II. So that meant that we have um, 256 percent of global GDP of public debt. This is uh, really uh, incredible amount. The global private debt is also very high, 156 percent of global GDP by the end of uh, 2020. So these are very large numbers, which means that we need to be very careful in um, managing them. These some of, some countries are of course key drivers of this. At some of the advanced economies and China are a large part of this uh, increase in debt. But you see it across the board from the you know lowest income countries to highest income countries across the board. Large increase in 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 debt. So what that means um, is we have to be careful because we have seen, uh, we had a, a, our April uh, World Economic Outlook chapter two, it uh, shows that historically, the rapid accumulation in corporate debt could slow the recovery by accumulative of almost 0.9% of GDP in advanced economies and 1.3% in emerging markets over the next three years. So it does have very large implications on, on, on growth. And that's amplified for countries where leverage is more concentrated among financially vulnerable corporates and households, hence the importance of doing the asset quality reviews, where fiscal space is more limited, where insolvency regimes are, are inefficient, and where monetary policy needs to tighten much more rapidly. We published a paper um, uh, supporting and restructuring firms hit by the COVID-19 crisis that lays out policy recommendations to better target support to viable firms while calibrating the exit of exceptional support measures. Do look at it if you haven't seen it because it includes a novel indicator to measure the preparedness of insolvency regimes across countries for a future crisis. And of course, vulnerabilities are much more pronounced in low-income countries or in other countries where they have inadequate insolvency regimes. So in terms of sovereign bank nexus and what needs to be done to deal with it is basically um, we have to make sure that countries can use um, macroprudential policies to address uh, the increasing vulnerabilities in countries, make sure that fiscal policy is um, adequately targeted, tightened where it's needed, and of course taking into account distributional implications, the poverty and other aspects, as, as uh, Carmen mentioned, but also develop the resolution frameworks to deal with both private debt, but also sovereign uh, domestic debt to facilitate early um, orderly deleveraging and restructuring as needed. So it's very important to make sure, of course, you know, it's very difficult to make these institutional changes overnight, but there are ways to um, use out-of-court settlement systems and other ways to really uh, ramp up the insolvency and resolution frameworks for, for private debt. And also I would underline sovereign domestic debt, which has been um, really lagging. And I will finish with what you also mentioned, the important role of financial supervision. This is really very critical. And the supervisors have a uh, a very important role. Of course, they don't supervise the corporate sector. We have been talking about private sector debt um, uh, now, uh, but they do have the relationship with the banking system, sorry, um, which um, which is critical to make sure that the um, 
corporate sector vulnerabilities are taken into account because mo most of the time, except in some of the very large advanced economies, corporate sector is borrowing from majority from the um, financial sector, from the banking sector. And there the role of the supervisors in terms of understanding the quality of assets and the um, exposures, foreign exchange exposures, uh, mismatches of the corporate sector through working closely with the banking system is feasible and it has been done many times in the past. And I think this is what really has to be uh, front and center at this point in time for supervisors. Yeah, thank you very much, Sheila. The second part of your answer, I think, is a big plug for uh, crisis preparedness and risk-based supervision because you're raising really important issues there. And before we go to Kuben, uh, two things. One for the audience. Uh, I see some questions. This is a good time for you to post your questions because we're going to go through as many as we can. Carmen, uh, your name was mentioned and you also brought up public debt. Before we go to Kuben, is there anything you want to add to what Chela said at this point? Or you can always do that intervention later. But I just wanted to give you a, the floor for a second if, you, if there's a thought that you wanted to get out. Uh, no, uh, I, I, I think it's important to highlight that the heyday, the big introduction of central bank independence, which we've also been talking about, was at a point in time when public debt uh, after the World War II bulge had declined. So there is, uh, you know, this is the, 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 the disinflationary 80s was associated with much lower levels of public and private debt. So the debt story is very much connected to our earlier discussion. Uh, as well, let me let me leave it there because I'd love to hear what Kuban. Uh, I'm waiting on that also from from Kuban. There goes again uh, the power of your historical understanding. So Kuban, uh, let's let's go to you because it, I I think you can sort of see how it all comes down to the practitioner, the central banker. Everyone keeps talking about the central banker, and I also notice you have a uh, deposit insurance responsibility as well. So from your vantage point, what can supervisors do to build their own resilience as well as their financial systems resilience to prepare for upcoming storms? And if you reflect as you reflect on this, you have a lot of knowledge about your peers in other countries as well. So, I mean, maybe you, your answer could be not just about South Africa, but in general, as you see the landscape. Thank you. No, I think Chela covered much of it. There's no substitute for good supervision over a long period. There's no substitute for risk-based supervision. Tools like stress testing uh, and getting independent people to come and do stress testing, you know, be it the IMF, uh, World Bank, the, through the FSAP process, uh, or getting academics in other countries saying, open up, here's our data, come and do a stress test in our banks. Can they survive these kinds of shocks? Uh, independent peer-reviewed stress testing, all of those kinds of things are part of the toolkit. But it, 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 it's, it, again, it's about repairing the roof while the sun is shining, right? And, and, and um, I, I think in part we've done that. I think the implementation of Basel III and the regulatory reform since the financial crisis have helped. Um, so, you know, while I'm not pretending that this time is different, I do think that in general, the financial sector is robust and resilient, well capitalized um, and, and, and well supervised. It's not to say that there are no risks, it's not to say that things cannot go wrong. You know, we, we've got to look at um, risks from multiple perspectives. Uh, default risk and credit risk is, is a key issue. 
large exposures? Does the banks have excessively large exposures to a few uh, counterparties? Um, you know, are they exposed to the mining sector or you know the, the food chain, food supply chain? What what are those risks? Um, but we, we've also got to look at the risk of capital outflows, right, and significant currency weakness, and what's that likely to do to our banking system? Something that's quite old in South Africa is that banks are not allowed to have, or banks can only have unhedged foreign currency exposure of 10% of tier one capital, right? So if tier one capital is around 12.5% on average, then they're only allowed to have unhedged foreign currency exposure of 1.25% of the balance sheet. Uh, that's something that's been in place for at least 25, 30 years, and has put us in good stead. When we had QE, we did not have a credit boom year. We had credit booms in other emerging markets. Uh, that's not to say that when, when the rand depreciates or the dollar appreciates, you don't get a tightening of financial conditions. But we've used those kinds of tools to insulate the banking sector from the direct effect of, 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 those, of, of those elements, Babak. Thank you very much. Uh, there's a, uh, so I'm just gonna go through the Q&A as much as possible. So just a couple of options, a couple of observations for our questioners. Uh, if you write your questions in a way that on the screen looks like a war and peace novel, your chance of me reading it is gonna be very low. So let's go for concision if we can help. And for our speakers, let's do the CNN style. So break the world down for us in 20 seconds, 30 seconds, so we get to as many questions as possible. Sorry about that, but we'll do the best we can. Um, Carmen, there's a question here that I think that, uh, let me let me pose it to you at least, uh, uh, and then um, maybe uh, Kuben or uh, Chela can also come in. What do the recent steep hikes in US interest rates mean for capital flows to developing economies? And I guess the next part of it is, what are the financial stability risks and how should financial supervisors prepare? So maybe we can answer this as a bit of a question. So if you really want me to answer quickly, the first is bad news. Uh, look, rate hikes um, historically, again, have not only the direct effects that they make capital staying at home more attractive, uh, but they have multiplier effects. They, they, they go hand in hand with rising risk premium. Uh, so, so during periods of rising rates, uh, what you typically have seen is, is you know, the global financial cycle having an effect on, 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 on negative effect on, on capital flows. Um, so that's, the rate hike story, which is associated with rising risk premia, i.e., you know, higher risk of, 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 of default. This is in the aggregate, right? This is what you see in, in you know, a lot of the spreads and so on. Second part is one underappreciated, but very connected to the core of the question on capital flows is China. Um, we've been focused on the rate hikes of the West, but Financing for emerging markets from the East uh, soared uh, up through around 2015. And in 2019, um, you know, my work with Chris Doc Trebish and Sebastian Horn, we've seen the first reversal in uh, net lending from China. So capital flows from both lending from China and from uh, the West, you know, the rising rates, we all, which also tend to increase market volatility, the VIX 
uh, all, all those things translate into more skittish, more selective, uh, other things equal, lower uh, capital flows, definitely more discriminating. So domestic fundamentals uh, acquire increased importance. Great, thank you. So Chela, let me pose the next question to you uh, from Valentin. On the impact of the war in Ukraine, apart from the food and energy price impacts, there's little to no discussion on the impact or potential impact on international payment systems. Should we be worried about this aspect also? So CNN style answer, yes. <laughs> I think- yes. Well, you could do national public radio too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yes. I, I mean, it is, uh, it is a fact that the, the payment system has uh, been fragmented. We have been discussing some of this in terms of also trade flows and um, other aspects. And it's um, the war, the related sanctions, the um, uh, other measures that are being taken by uh, countries. Uh, so yes, I, I, this is uh, something that we're very worried about. Carmen talked about fragmentation in her introductory remarks, uh, or rather in your, uh, in the response to your first question. And this is top of mind for many of us. And part of it is the fragmentation in the payment system with um, different, uh, of course, we have reserve currencies, it will take uh, a long time for any reversals on that given the, um, you know, the the characteristics that are needed for that, but we do see um, fragmentation in certain blocks of countries starting to do payments payments among them. So I am I am quite worried. There's also uh, another aspect of this, not just the war in Ukraine, um, but also the increase in digital payments. That's also <coughs> leading to fragmentation uh, in terms of different types of currencies and stable currencies and the risks that that brings. So I think there is an important aspect of acceleration of use of digital currencies and the implications on the payment system. And that should be for the international community, uh, a first order um, uh, you know, development that, needs, that requires collaboration at um, multinational level. Great, thank you. And Sheila, earlier in the um, program, you did talk about a report and you urged us to take a look at it. If you want to send a link to us, to me, to Demet, we'll post it on the, uh, on the Zoom. And if it's after the program, we're happy to you know, put it out in our website. So feel free to do that or one of your staff members. There's a question here from uh, Tom Bellick. Uh, Kuben, I'm gonna give this to you. Um, it's an interesting question. We are aware of most of the current global risks um, con con concerns. Are there global risks not openly discussed or not as well known? So this is one of those in the category of Donald Rumsfeld unknown unknowns. Is there something that we are not talking about that we should be? Look, I, I, I don't know. I think you know we were we deal. Central banks must deal in 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 the in the realm of transparency. If we think something is a risk, we must talk to our citizens about it. You know, I don't think there's anything that we we're hiding in particular. But let, let me talk a little bit about the, the the central bank independence issue, the the pressure. I fully understand the, the the pressure, the political economy issue facing central banks. Right, we've had COVID, which, as Carmen pointed out, negatively affected the poor. In fact, you know, in in South Africa, the 
unskilled job losses were, were massive and I've still not re recovered, right? I mean, I'm a skilled person, I can work from home. If you're a burger flipper in McDonald's or a shelf packer in Walmart, or if you work in a restaurant in the tourism industry, you can't work from home. And, 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 and those, those have been the jobs that's lost. And now all of a sudden you've got inflation, you know, in, in, in taking the US sort of 8% inflation. And, and the job of central banks is to make it hard for firms to provide salary increases, right? We want to prevent wage price spirals. And we do that by making the economic conditions such that people can't pass on price increases and, and, and price setters can't, can't just provide wage increases and then transfer those costs to consumers. We do that by, 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 by you know, either taking our foot off the accelerator or by actually pressing the brake on the economy. That poses a significant political economy challenge, right? Um, you could argue that inflation has negatively affected mainly the poor, certainly in South Africa's case, food and fuel. Uh, if you're in the bottom half of the income spectrum, you're spending almost half your income on food and fuel uh, or energy and food. Um, and that's where the price increases have been. And all of a sudden, the central bank says, well, we're going to make conditions even tighter. But let me say that the alternative is worse. Right? The alternative is we allow inflation to run away. That is likely to have an even greater negative impact on the poor, right? on their savings, on the ability of the economy to recover quickly, on the ability of people to get jobs quickly, on the ability to, to grow labor-intensive competitive industries is even harder. Right? And, and so if we fail in our job of getting on top of inflation, the victims will be the poorest half of the income spectrum. Okay. So yes, of course, there's pain. There's no doubt about it. Yes, of course, we, 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 we must be sensitive to that and recognize that. And we must be honest with our citizens about it. But the alternative is worse. The alternative is far worse. That, that is so true. You know, for many of our viewers who live in developed economies and haven't had experience in developing countries might be bizarre, some of this stuff. But let me just give an anecdotal example. It's not even anecdotal. It's a real example I remember. Uh, I was in Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, again in the 90s, and I remember inflation was runaway. So this is the second time I'm talking about it. You'd go to the store to buy sugar. Half an hour later, you go back or an hour, you go back, the price has gone up. And that's just one example, right? So we've never had that. So we're talking about five, six, seven percent here, maybe 10 percent in some of the developed countries. But, you know, the runaway specter of runaway inflation actually can be very scary for those who have experiences. So thank you very much for bringing that back. Um, Carmen, I'm going to give a question to you. It's a bit of a hybrid question. Unfortunately, we don't have anyone from Latin America on this panel, but you know they're very much in our mind. Um, can you give us some insight regarding the economic perspective of Latin America? And then the hybrid from another question down below is really the impact of the, uh, the poor and what's going on here. And as you know, uh, Latin America is not alone in the world, but they have some governance issues and other things, and many countries around the world have that as well. So, um, you know, as a World Bank chief economist, when you look at that region, what are some of the top mind things that come to your mind that you could share with us in the context of this conversation? Thank you. So Latin America was hit really hard by COVID in terms of, of the actual health statistics. Uh, the impacts are, are quite severe by, by international comparisons. Um, many of the issues that we've been discussing uh, from lack of recovery 
starting, let's start with that, to the inflation challenges, to the debt challenges, and to the financial stability challenges that Shayla talked about are all present in Latin America. If you look at credit rating downgrades during 2020, uh, they've slowed down during 2021, uh, but, but credit rate, view credit ratings almost as a summary statistic of some of these risks. And th th this highlights a point that uh, Latin America has been hit hard. What are what is one concern? And 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 by the way, a lot of the 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 new poor is urban poor, and 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 women, and that's very much alive and well as a, as a, a phenomenon. It's not unique to Latin America, but it's certainly very present there. Uh, the other factor that I like to highlight uh, in the context of of, of Latin America is that. Um, it, I, I'm not, I don't have time to belabor this now, but look for a, a short blog called The Reversal Problem, which is setbacks to development. And that also includes a discussion of the impacts on COVID uh, on education. And those impacts actually are estimated to be higher for middle-income countries than for many low-income countries uh, during the COVID pandemic. And Latin, Latam falls squarely into that. Uh, last, um, I am concerned that the shrinkage of the pie and the worsening in distribution of the pie is also leading in, in Latin America very visibly to a pendulum swing in the political economy. Um, we've seen, you know, uh, a, a, a return of, of social unrest, of more populist, uh, you know, and economic reversals often lead to policy reversals. And that's a big concern that I have for the region. Right now, many countries are being helped by the uh, boom in commodities. Um, word of warning, if you're a policymaker in Latin America, do not treat the commodity price boom as permanent. That is the root cause of so many fiscal problems uh, down the road, but I do. I. 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 It. It. It was a very a particularly hard hit region uh, during the last two years. Thank you, and we wish them all the best. And uh, I guess there was another question uh, this time from another part of the world. Kuban, I'm going to go to you. Uh, this is from another courageous anonymous, drawing from the consensus that we are heading to a recession. To what extent should sub-Saharan African countries be worried about this imminent eventuality? Thank you. It is a worry, but you know, did you fix the roof when the sun was shining, right? And 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 that's the million-dollar question. Um, you know, and again, in my own country's case, we fixed part of the roof. We didn't fix part of the roof. Right. And we, we, we're not in a good fiscal position uh, relative to pre-GFC uh, or even pre-COVID. Um, you know, you've got significant levels of public debt. The deficit has come down in the last two years because of good commodity prices. Uh, but there's a big temptation for politicians to spend that. And some mm -hmm. of that on fuel subsidies or food subsidies. And I understand the political imperative of that. But if those commodity prices, as Carmen said, were to fall, you, you've got a big fiscal hole again. And so in some ways, you could be facing a situation where you're back at neutral levels of GDP growth, 
um, but a budget deficit of five six percent of GDP, uh, we, we, which will put you in trouble, right? And 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 you know you'll get punished for that kind of policy by 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 by, by markets and bond markets, etc. Um, so, so the issue is about repairing the roof when when the sun is shining, or in the best of times, or even in the worst of times. And there are two or three very simple elements to to that, right? I mean, fiscal policy, you know. You can choose your own tax to GDP ratio, but in general, when times are good, you bring down the budget deficit, and times are bad, you you widen them, right? And and you, if you go into a crisis, the lower the level of debt you go into the crisis, the better. You don't have to put numbers to that; it's not rocket science, but that's a simple rule of thumb. We went into this uh, in COVID. We went into COVID with good inflation, well anchored, you know, and that gave us the space to cut interest rates very dramatically. Right? And, and, and that provided significant stimulus to the economy and we could keep interest rates relatively low for long. You know, and we started hiking six months before we breached the inflation target on the upper end. Right? And, and again, it, it's, if, if you go into a crisis well prepared, then, you, then you're likely to be more resilient. And lastly, on the financial sector, you, know, you, you, you have to make sure that your banks are well capitalized, that, you, that they are robust, resilient, from everything from capital to credit issues to cyber issues, right? And, and if, they, if, they, if, if they can withstand those kinds of pressures, then um, yeah, I think you, you'll manage. I, I, again, I don't want to belittle the problem, right? In South Africa, about a third of the population have wheat as their staple diet, and we import a significant amount of wheat, and wheat prices have gone up. There's no doubt about it. Right, um, food prices have gone up. Food inflation in South Africa is now running at seven point eight percent. Right, I mean it, it. It's it's above the, the the headline rate of inflation, and it's not might not be as high as some other countries. We might not be as bad as Egypt, for example, uh, where where food inflation is running at 30 40 percent. Um, but, but again, we don't want that kind of spiral, right? We we we, we don't want it to get there. Um, and so while I'm genuinely sympathetic to the fact that inflation is hitting the poorest harder, our job as central banks is to ensure that we, 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 we nip it in the bud. We are part of an economic team. We're not the full economic team. There are fiscal players, there are economic policy players, there are trade players, there are tax players, right? We're the central bank and we must do our part of the job to, to, as part of that team. We can't do everything. That's true. And a couple of quick observations. So many, uh, as, as all of these issues are becoming politicized, looks like central banks, going back to Chalo's point about independence and the consensus of this panel, they become sort of like their political football, right? Governments can blame them. And in fact, as you said, it's an architecture. And your comments are very much in line with Benjamin Franklin, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. So in other words, in good times, call a roofer, in bad times, central bank is there for you, right? So that's it's very important. So Chela, coming back to you, there's a question here from Anna, since you brought it up. Uh, can, could you mention some methods on how the public and private debts, debt should be reduced? So uh, I guess, uh, as uh, Kuban was saying, it's good to fix the roof when, uh, when sun is shining. Um, but yes, it, I mean, there are ways to deal with, you know, increase in public debt at a time when you're already almost in a crisis, and there are ways to deal with it um, uh, in a much more preemptive way. 
So some of the measures like uh, Kuban mentioned in terms of making sure that the foreign, ex foreign exposure limits, this is really critical for not getting into trouble, are in place to ensure that the private sector, households and corporate sector do not leverage themselves uh, uh, too much if they don't have foreign uh, earnings, foreign exchange earnings. And if they borrow in foreign exchange, that's really usually the recipe for disaster. So both in, at the sovereign level, but also at the uh, corporate and household level, making sure that there are enough um, uh, regulations and um, rules in place to ensure that, th that there is not um, large uh, leveraging, especially in terms of foreign currency. So I think that's a very key aspect of it. The second one is maturity because usually you also get into trouble because of maturity mismatch, rollover risk, refinancing risk. So really making sure that uh, as much as possible, uh, issuing for governments, issuing in local currency, issuing as much as possible, longer maturity um, uh, instruments. So I think these are really uh, critical. And of course, the regular um, methods of stress tests and other ways of making sure that uh, one is prepared as these risks uh, increase. There's of course global coordination, you know this very well at the regulatory level to make sure that we learned this, this was the lesson from the global financial crisis. You can have each of your individual institutions strong, but as the system as a whole because of interdependencies may not be strong. So having the macroprudential tools in place to look at what are the interlinkages between uh, different institutions and making sure that those are not um, those are kept in uh, in, in uh, reasonable levels is is also very important. So there are measures at the domestic level, international level that needs to be in place to make sure that uh, we don't end up with um, very high levels of debt that uh, ends up uh, you know triggering uh, systemic risks. Sure, thank you. And you know what, a nightmare of a moderator in this situation is lack of questions. In this case, we are overwhelmed by a lot of questions. So you have done amazing to be able to light up the switchboards here. Let me go to um, a question from a good friend of Toronto Center. She's still, the name is there. Uh, yeah, Yoke Wong Talk of Singapore, who used to work here. Uh, Kuban, I'm gonna give this to you. It's an interesting question and uh, it, deals not just with policy, but also with communication. How do you, how do countries facing rising food and energy prices, sounds like all of them, tighten policies, and how do you, moreover, how do you art, artfully communicate the need to sacrifice growth to bring down inflation? This is where, you know, there's a clash probably between central bankers and politicians, right? So how do you, what should countries do in these situations? <clears throat> Again, it, this is a difficult issue, right? I mean, this is the worst position that central bankers like to be in. We like to be in the situation where you've got high growth, high inflation, and we can take a bit of edge off the inflation rate to bring the, the growth rate to bring inflation down. Alternatively, if you've got low growth, low inflation, we can stimulate a bit. We, we, we hate to be in this position where you've got high inflation, low growth, right? And 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 <coughs> we are. And and it's not a nice place to be, but somebody's got to do it. And you know, we've got to be true to our mandate. Um, it's not always that we're in this position, but in the particular circumstances that we find ourselves in this position, our primary mandate as a central bank is price stability. 
right? If there is fiscal space, you know, uh, I think in some countries you may subsidize food, you may subsidize fuel by giving cash transfers to the poorest households, right? If you've got the fiscal space. Um, I mean, what, what we've seen here, and again, there are efficient and inefficient ways of doing this. You know, I, I think it, it, it is a political economy choice. Do you want to cushion the, the, the impact of rising food and fuel prices on the poor? And I think some governments can do that. And if they have the space, should do that. Uh, if they can reprioritize public spending from one area to another, that, that's even better. Right? Uh, but those are fiscal policy choices. Those are political choices. Right. You know, if if we don't nip inflation in the bud, we will be accused of eroding people's savings, of causing an even greater economic uh, uh, mess and problem. And if we do raise interest rates to try and nip inflation in the bud, we'll be accused of, of, of sacrificing growth to get, to, to get prices down. So, you know, damned if you do and damned if you don't. But again, I, I think we've got to stick to our mandate. And in this particular case, you know, we have no choice but to put prioritize bringing down inflation. It's not a nice place to be. And, you know, I think being honest with the, with the government and with the country and with the public is probably a better strategy. Um, but, but be true to the mandate we have to be. You know what? It's interesting. I mean, yes, honesty and integrity is always, uh, you know, takes the cake, but especially in situations like today when, there's such a high level of mistrust of government authorities around the world and the social media keeps fomenting these. So maybe, maybe you're, you're absolutely correct. Just being upfront and honest doesn't take away the pain, but might be a strategy that actually people will see, okay, I get it. Um, Carmen, actually you're mentioning the question. Ms. Reinhardt mentioned the problem of fragmentation. What is your opinion on the impact of fragmentation on globalization in terms of changes in distribution channels and new trends such as nearshoring. Yeah, and, and but let me just quickly, I, you, you asked a question uh, to Kuben that was just so tempting. Uh, you know, what <laughs> yeah. is it that we don't see? Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, crises, economic, whether they're financial or debt, are often characterized by it's not what you see that gets you, <clears throat> what you don't see. And, and there, I think also, you know, we have issues relating to hidden debts. Uh, you know, we have issues relating to hidden non-performing loans. Chela and I also wrote about this uh, in a recent uh, finance and development piece in, in, in the World Development Report. In other words, one constant through history in financial crisis is often balance sheets are a lot worse than they seem, and the true risks are revealed during the crisis. So I am concerned also about le far less so, and, and Kuban has highlighted that point, and I agree with it, uh, that banks are well capitalized, uh, capitalized but non-banking and, and shadow banks uh, are a much far, far more nebulous story. Let me leave it there. Um, fragmentation, very quickly. Um, look. Um, I, I, I noted that fragmentation already exists in, in what used to be, <laughs> until not long ago, an integrated uh, commodity market. You know, we have oil being sold at, you know, 
that kind of fragmentation is already there. We have the kind of um, evidence during COVID of significant increases in transport costs, international transport costs that have spiked to, to, to levels that are you know, way off the charts. Uh, that's also indicative of the fragmentation of supply chains, uh, of uh, you know, the uh, less than perfect synchronization uh, in, in shocks and policies. And I think capital markets uh, are also at the risk of seeing further fragmentation if indeed a rising share uh, of developing countries also do face debt distress and are shut out altogether. Uh, one you know, element to not lose sight of is, you know, we kind of have it in our back background, you know, but the USSR uh, era was one of not a global capital market, you know, you clearly had a divided world. And I think there is a question of to what extent, and as this, I alluded to oil, I alluded to, to finance, and I alluded to trade, um, that, uh, you know, a Cold War dimension that has been dormant and that has, you know, been overrun by uh, a, a distinct trend towards more integrated capital and markets and, you know, goods market, whether we're back paddling, whether we're, we're uh, reversing some of that. Reversals in globalization are not new. You, we had a golden era of globalization in the late 1800s and World War I and the Great Depression, uh, you know, then the setbacks and the return to wild talking. I'm not suggesting anything that dramatic, but the events that we're having, uh, I think, do impact those long cycles uh, in globalization. Thank you. No, that's that's uh, that's critical. Chela, I'm going to go to uh, to you on a couple of questions that I'm going to make hybrid. I see a couple of comments on, again, going back to debt, forgiving debt of developing countries, and you know they're trying to do all of this. And where is there any discussion at all happening at the global stage about forgiving debt? And there are precedences, right, where debt of some countries in Latin America and elsewhere was forgiven. Are we anywhere there now, or is this still a very far out discussion? And is that, is, is that actually a good thing, bad thing? I mean, any, any views you have would be very helpful to us. So we did have um, a, a debt, suspense, debt service suspension initiative right after the pandemic, right? In, in March, this was actually a call by the IMF and the World Bank, uh, the president and the uh, managing director at the time and the G20 actually established it. This was um, for the poorest countries, the World Bank's IDA countries, uh, 73 of them. And the debt service suspension initiative was basically due to the pandemic to give the space to countries that are, that, have, that are the poorest to be able to deal with the pandemic rather than trying to make their debt service payment. And that was a G20 initiative. Um, it, not every country applied for it that was eligible, but there were about 44 countries 
And there's um, all sorts of reports uh, at the IMF and the World Bank website that provides information on what happened as, uh, in the context of the DSSI. What then was discussed at the G20 and established was the common framework for debt treatments, which is basically the problem with the DSSI was that the private sector it wasn't mandatory for the private sector and they didn't volunteer, obviously. So you had official sector providing debt service relief, whereas private sector um, uh, exposures remain the same. And I think that's um, what is in the back of everyone's mind with any other initiative that may be necessary. Right now, uh, I think there is the common framework. There are other ways of dealing with the uh, increase in debt, but if there was a need for another debt initiative, I think it's going to be very important to think through the role of the private sector because no official creditor wants to participate in any debt relief effort when the private sector is not included. So I think that's going to be a very critical as we think about these issues. My uh, concern is we have um, very large increase in debt. Um, financial conditions tightening um, globally. And this is a very difficult period for capital flows to emerging markets and developing economies. So reversal of what we saw um, since the GFC. And we also have, you know, slowdown in China, which will mean China was one of the largest creditors to many countries, which also means retrenchment of China from uh, most of the low income and, and emerging market countries. So all this coming together to provide uh, a credit crunch to many of the countries. And I think that's also in the context of fragmentation that Carmen also just talked about, right? We all agree that uh, we learned during the pandemic that supply chains needs to be uh, more resilient, that more diversification, but we are moving towards the other extreme of quote unquote, all sorts of different types of alignments among different countries, which will fragment trade, which will fragment uh, financial flows. And I think that's um, uh, highly uh, worrisome in the context of high debt and, and difficult conditions in many countries and food and energy price increases, which puts them in uh, a difficult, very difficult uh, place. Thank you. And, and uh, I can't resist, but just a quick food plug for Canada. So I know everyone talks about Ukraine and Russia as uh, the large, amongst the largest exporters of grain and food in Canada is one too. So hopefully countries can access that. But I also understand that trade flows are not one that one can replace the other. It's very complicated. But anyway, um, Kuben, there's a bunch of questions on central bank independence. Let me try to abstract them all. So is it uh, especially in relation to emerging market countries, right? So is it a question of balancing the different and conflicting objectives of central bank between inflation, inclusive growth, and social development, or is this straight about political interference? I recognize it's a sensitive question, so you don't necessarily need to comment on South Africa, but in general, when people talk about central bank independence, what are they trying to advocate? Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, but, you know, we've chosen a set of institutions and there's no perfect model. I'm not arguing that one model is better than the other, but the set of institutions that we've chosen is that we'll give fiscal policy to government elected officials. Uh, 
right? If you don't have an independent central bank, you go back to an era where nobody wants to deal with the problem of pro-cyclicality in an economy, right? That it is the incentive for, it is always the incentive for politicians to deliver goods today with tomorrow's money, right? And, and you know, I understand this, right? I mean, I've, I've worked in the public sector. You want to deliver goods today with tomorrow's money, right? I mean, you, I'm going to be voted in today in the next three to five years. I may be voted out and I'm going to use tomorrow's money to deliver goods today, right? Who's going to discipline you, right? And, and that's the, the unfortunate job of the central banker is to play that disciplining role. It says, okay, if you're gonna borrow from tomorrow for today's benefits, there are limits. There's a price you gotta pay and we're gonna set that price, right? And, and if, you, if you take central bank independence away, that institution collapses, then there's no limits, right? I think that, you know, sort of, Liberal democracies with fiscal autonomy need central bank independence in the medium to long run. Right? Without it, I don't see those institutions holding together. They'll collapse. Right? And so I also want to make the point that I fully understand that central bank independence is never permanent. It's never absolute. It depends on public trust. Right? It depends on our ability to communicate to the public. It depends on the broad social compact. Right? And again, uh, you know, to reassert the, the social compact that the central bank must be humble enough to know what we have the ability to do and what we don't have the ability to do. I can't fix the potholes in the road. I can't solve H7 literacy. I'm incapable of doing that. If there's a water leak down my road as a central banker, I'm incapable of solving that problem. We've got power shortages in South Africa. The central bank is incapable of helping. Right? We must stick to our netting, right? We must stick to what we've been given the responsibility. We've been given a price stability responsibility and a financial stability responsibility in law. Stick to that. There are other economic actors, economic participants, economic members of the team. You know, I, I like to use the football analogy or, or to use the, 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 the American word, the soccer analogy, right? Central banks are goalkeepers. We're the last line of defense. We can prevent collapse, but we can't score goals. We are incapable of scoring goals. Scoring goals is where you create the jobs. We're incapable of doing that on a permanent basis, right? And so shouting at the goalkeeper because your team is not scoring goals is not gonna help. Firing the goalkeeper or reducing his room or degrees of freedom is not going to help. It's not going to help the team, right? And, and, and I think it also requires central bankers to be a bit humble that we don't have the ability to score goals, certainly not sustainably. Well, Kuben, we will cheer for central bankers uh, remembering uh, South Africa's World Cup with Vuvuzelas and hopefully everyone will fall in line. And Carmen, the last question goes to you. Super complicated questions, so you're going to hate me for asking it, but how long will this recession last? So the fear sometimes we have is by the time governments actually call the recessions, two quarters have gone, GDP growth is negative, and then we're out of it. Is this one of those, or is this going to last a long time because of some of the fragmentation and global architectural cracks that you've identified? Thank you. So last, how long for whom? Uh, this is, you know, not a one-size-fits-all response. 
And, uh, you know, I think um, when uh, Paul Volcker in October of 79, between October of 79 and March of 1980 raised interest rates by 600 basis points almost, um, you know, we actually didn't have one recession in the US, we had two, but really that defining division between the two was really thin and, and, and shallow. So, you know, that, that was at that time, the worst recession uh, since the war, World war since World War II. Um, are we going to have a short, shallow recession? I think, you know, um, for many countries, let me start with the developing, uh, that, that, that seems to me improbable uh, because of some of the reasons also that we have been discussing, you know, that there are debt challenges, that there are, are, are you know, challenges relating to high inflation, which require tighter monetary policy. Therefore, no, no stimulus from the monetary policy side. There's limited fiscal space. So there is unlikely to be stimulus from the fiscal side. Somebody else earlier also posed the question on how do you reduce debt? Well, one of the, re the ways you reduce debt also is by belt tightening, which is never pleasant, easy, uh, and often uh, recessionary. Uh, so, so, you know, for many developing countries, I think, you know, again, this is not a cookie cutter because fiscal positions and credibility uh, initial conditions are very different. Some of, you know, uh, some of the things I'm saying, you know, are, 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 are very hybrid. Uh, for the advanced economies, I think Europe is, is maybe in for a longer haul than, than the U.S. because their dependence on Russian oil and Russian energy is something that you don't, you know, get rid of at the drop of a hat. Um, so I don't want to be wishy-washy, but the idea that this is going to fit into a tidy mold where, you know, um, there is uh, short, medium, or long. It, it, you know, we're 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 facing a very different set of initial conditions which influence resilience. Thank you very much, Carmen. Especially for those frank comments at the end, which I think is going to be a good uh, good way to wrap things up. I really appreciate every one of you just by the interest that we saw from the audience. Uh, this was a very dynamic conversation. I apologize to the audience for leaving some questions on the table, but we will, you know, we will have them. We will deal with them in one way or another through additional conversations or our courses at Toronto Center. As a moderator, I apologize that I failed you by two minutes, but this conversation was captivating and you all have our gratitude. Thank you and have a pleasant day or evening wherever you are. Take care, bye-bye. Mm -hmm.